This is the Social Leader Podcast, made for entrepreneurs, business owners, faith leaders, community advocates, volunteers, trailblazers, innovators, and visioneers from every walk of life. Social leaders strive to move beyond charity to integrate and then operationalize their social priorities. They forge sustainable solutions to solve our community's most tangled problems. Social leaders are the most creative, most important leaders of our time because they are striving to lead with greater social impact and change our world. Welcome to the Social Leader Podcast. I'm Father Justin Matthews. And hey, real quick before we begin, I want to let you know that this podcast is presented by Reconciliation Services, a nonprofit social venture in Kansas City working to cultivate a community seeking racial and economic reconciliation to reveal the strength of all. You can find out more about Reconciliation Services programs and even support our work at rs3101.org. Well, I am super excited today to welcome my guest, Nicole Jacobs-Sylvie, who is a Kansas City institution in so many ways. She is the president and the founder of Connection Coach KC. She works with the Chamber of Commerce. She has worked for uh, UMKC and external relations and just so many other things where she is deeply involved in community building and in leadership. Nicole, I am so honored to have you on the program today. Welcome. Thank you. I'm honored to be here. We've been talking about this for some time, and I'm so glad it's come to fruition. You have an amazing team. Angela Dixon, I think she probably did about 10 emails back and forth to get this scheduled, and she is just amazing. So thank you. Well, it's great to have you on, and thank you for making the time. Well, Look, Nicole, as you know, this podcast is all about learning to lead with greater social impact. And there are only a few people in Kansas City that I know who are emerging with such speed as leaders who are really making change. I've seen you on so many Zoom and, and other webinars, even most recently, um, helping to host some really powerful listening conversations hosted by the Greater Kansas City Chamber of Commerce. And of course, if you go to their website, uh, anybody can find those. And they were powerful. Even one of our board members, Myron McCant, you interviewed on, on one of those uh, listening sessions. But, you know, I don't know that everybody knows you. And you have a powerful story. Tell us a little bit about how you became the leader that you are today, Nicole. Thank you so much for asking, because as we were talking in prep meetings, so often, you know, people see you on chapter, this is my 49th year, so you see me at chapter 49 and don't see all of the pages that led up to this story. So I welcome this opportunity to share some information I don't typically get to. Um, my story begins, I was born in the Bronx, um, New York, and, and some people know that. My my family, no, no part of my family other than my nuclear family is in the Midwest. Everyone has lived on the coast. And my mother, an uh, immigrant from Jamaica, came to the United States and moved to New York City. Um, my father was born and raised in New York City in Harlem and then moved to the Bronx. And they met at St. John's University and got married and then had me and my sister. Um, and early in both sides of our family at that time lived in Jamaica, both my Jamaican side and my paternal um, family side did. And soon my father had upward mobility and moved to upstate New York when he got a promotion. He worked for um, Mobile Chemical at the time. So we moved to Rochester, New York. Um, so we lived in a community, as we know, the Bronx to be 
um, multicultural, interfaith, um, just just all of the things in terms of culture, and then moved to upstate New York, a wonderful community, primarily Catholic, which is also my background, but predominantly white, and, and more semi-rural um, suburb. There was lots of land. We had cherry orchards behind where we lived. And so my background starts from having to navigate spaces where people didn't look like me. So I had this duality of going to the Bronx and going back there in the summers to visit my relatives and the richness and the depth and breadth of a diversity in the Bronx. And then being in a pretty homogenous community and being one of the only and living in Rochester. Um, I think in that time at the elementary school, there might've been six black students and I don't remember any Latinx students and we probably came from three families. So wow. very different and it framed my background. Well, your grandmother, it sounds like, had quite a journey. Uh, is there any part of her story that really um, was formative for you where she came from Jamaica and then to New York? I mean, what was what was special to you about her and what did you learn from her or her experience uh, as an immigrant to the United States that shaped your leadership today? Thank you. Um, my grandmother, so my maternal grandmother, um, at the time my family lived in Jamaica and I came to find out later, the reason they came to the United States like so many families is for additional opportunities. Theirs were specifically around education. At that time, Jamaica didn't have a university. So coming from a family in um, Jamaica that was middle-class, my grandmother opted to come to the United States as a domestic and worked as a, an, as a maid for a wealthy family in the Hamptons and then worked there for some time and sent for the rest of the family. What I learned from her experiences is the humility that it takes to change your socioeconomic status. Most people are not willingly making a decision to be in a lesser socioeconomic status and the less opportunities or, um, that that affords you, but she was willing to do so for an education. And throughout my leadership story, you'll see education plays a large part in either um, fostering my career and development or the work that I do to make sure that others have access as well. Wow, what a powerful testimony of sacrifice that, you know, your grandmother went from being middle class, but in order to really give you and your family, your parents, the kind of opportunities that she saw in the United States, she was willing to become a maid. And I just think that that in and of itself is such um, an example of co-suffering and co-laboring and building. And I can only imagine how that kind of self-sacrifice ripples through your family in positive ways. What That's just a really powerful example. You know, I didn't ever think about the fact that at that time, Jamaica wouldn't have had a university. I mean, we, we take a lot of things in the United States for granted, in particular, um, high quality education. What are your thoughts around education and the need for high quality education for everyone in the United States? Absolutely. That's where it started. Um, so my mom speaks with great fondness of her education in Jamaica. But when she came to the United States, of course, they were a family of poverty. They lived in the South Bronx. But my mom and her siblings were able to get scholarships to go to a private Catholic school. So they went to a parochial school and the nuns there really took in my mom as well as her brothers. And they formed um, such a strong education background for her. That was her sanctuary. 
Hmm. There was just there were some aspects within her home that were dysfunctional and challenging. Hmm. And that was the place where she could seek and know that she had safety and that she was valued and respected. So that always has been um, such a hallmark of what I've seen. I also know we don't choose who we're born to. So while this is my my leadership journey, it starts with who our parents are. From my grandmother thinking about her being a domestic, then thinking about me um, going all the way and um, living in upstate New York and then living in upper middle class community in St. Louis, you think that's just, you know, a few generations, two generations away, how quickly that can change based on education, which leads to access. So often um, I'm on the board of University Academy and what really drew me to that school is instead of just solely focusing on the academic gap, the achievement gap, they focus on the opportunities gap. What we know is that um, intelligence is equally distributed across communities, but opportunities are not. And when they, when I heard the superintendent say that, because that's always been my belief, I've seen it play out, um, that spoke to me. So knowing that I had access to educational opportunities based on who my parents are, based on the zip code, all of the things that we know, that there were others who didn't solely based on um, different socioeconomic status and that access to education. That's always stayed with me and really was the, the catalyst for me going into education um, You know, after college. It was what I always wanted to do was teach and inspire and motivate. Yeah, you, you bring out a really important distinction that, that you said that you learned from your board service, this idea that that not everybody has the same access. I think we live in a world where that's not the the norm belief, right? I mean, everybody would say, look, everybody you know, has a level playing field, that's the beauty of America. But I, I know from experience, and it sounds like from your experience, you would uh, also indicate that that's not the case. We talk a lot at Reconciliation Services about how um, when you live in concentrated poverty, you have a lot of social capital. In other words, your neighbor is going through the same thing that you're going through, and you have that social ability to commiserate. But what you don't have is bridging capital. How do I bridge from where I am to where I want to be? And I think so often education, as well as the ability to afford to move to a different neighborhood, what it's really giving you is uh, equitable opportunities and that bridging capital. What was it like for you? Um, obviously, it was a privilege to be able to move to a, an upper middle class neighborhood in St. Louis and to have the kind of uh, family that you were given. But I'm sure it came with uh, its, its struggles as well, being one of only six uh, women or men of color in that community. Are you willing to share any of that experience and maybe how it shaped you and your leadership? What did you learn from that? Yes, those were the most profound experiences. I did, didn't even know because I was just living them at the time, how they would be so important to the work that I do up to this point and even what I'm teaching my son. So moved to upstate New York in Rochester and then my father got transferred again. He kept having advancements in his career and promotions. And we moved when I was in high school to St. Louis. I was excited to move to St. Louis because there were going to be more black students in my school than ever I had attended since the Bronx because there was the desegregation program as many are aware of in St. Louis. What I didn't realize is I lived in the suburbs and the students were being bused in. And so there was a divide based on socioeconomic even though we had shared culture. 
And then keep in mind that my background, I'm used to being in diverse communities like the Bronx. People only see me as I show up. And my family in the Bronx has a very similar speech pattern to the one that I have um, with an accent. But when I moved to St. Louis, I got lots of comments about my how I presented. Um, why does she talk white? Um, my mom is a fair-skinned um, African-American woman. Why is your mom light? All of these things, and this may sound so crazy, Father Justin, you, you think I'm that this, this couldn't be true, but my high school self, I looked and I thought my mom's light. Like I knew that she was, but I at that time didn't understand colorism and know that that meant something to some people. I knew her as a black woman and I didn't understand all the nuances. So this is emerging to me. I'm thinking I'll be embraced in a community that has more black students. And instead, um, the socioeconomic divide, they put me in a different category. Mm. Um, so I felt an isolation within the a community that was upper middle class and, and many of my, my peers talked in ways that I wouldn't. I remember peers standing up in class and telling our teachers, do you know who my father is? Um, I wasn't raised in that way to speak to people or, or to um, lead with privilege and recognizing my own privilege when I felt um, because I was a person of color that I, it was off balance. So I'm navigating all of this and kind of figuring out and in the meantime, feeling like a unicorn as I'm watching these spaces go by. And of course, the angst of moving to a community when you're in high school, a new community, all of those things. Yeah. But it, it really helped me to understand as I made friends with some students who are part of the desegregation program and lived in the city of St. Louis and visiting their communities. Some, I remember one friend, her grandmother, I went to visit and I was talking to her grandmother and she said, where are you from? And I said, New York, you know, I explained and I said, and she goes, where do you live? And I said, Chesterfield. And she said, where's that? And it was a suburb of our same city. It was so far away to her, even though that's where her granddaughter had gone, is going to school. And I realized how segregated and isolated the communities and siloed were in St. Louis. And it just really shaped so much of my thoughts and beliefs and really opened my eyes, to be honest. Do you think that those desegregation programs were... Um... I think everybody would say that they were needed and positive, but you're, you're bringing out a really important nuance um, that I've heard other friends of mine who are African-American or Latinx talk about the difficulty of that desegregation. And uh, I've also read a lot about the history of how the desegregation of schools, particularly in Kansas City, is what set off white flight and the disinvestment of whole swaths of our community. So. Talk to me about how there's this cognitive dissonance and there's this mm. sort of almost a double-edged sword to, to the desegregation efforts that you lived through. Um, was it all positive or, or could it have been done differently in a way that would have um, prohibited that kind of racism and structural racist experience? You know, I'm so glad you, you asked this because I don't talk about this often either. And I think about it often. I've reflected over the years. There's intention and then there's impact. Mm -hmm. And I understand on paper and where the design came up for the desegregation program. I, I can see it clearly. I understand. But the impact was much different. I went to school in a desegregated school that had segregation in the center of it. In my classes, I, um, because I had a strong education background, upstate New York has excellent education. Yeah. I was able to be as my sister in um, AP classes, advanced classes, 
and my classes were all white. So yet again, I was in a school that was supposed to be desegregated and I was, I was one of the only yet again. So um, I one year, I can't remember how I got to be an office aide and I must have had enough credits. And I was asked to deliver a package to one of the teachers and I'd never heard of this teacher. And so I asked where his classroom was and it was a wing of the school that I hadn't even been in. If you can imagine, it's a big sprawling high school. I had 550 students in my class, similar to like a Shawnee Mission East or a Blue Valley North. So I'm going to deliver this and I go to a classroom and I see everybody in the classroom is black. Mm. And I thought, what is this? And the walls are cinder block. It doesn't even look like the rest of the school. And I see that there's tracking and that was a more remedial track. So I, again, didn't even know that happened. So I mostly saw the other students of color in my electives, in lunch and in PE. So it was a segregation within a desegregated school. So that was a piece of what I learned. I also saw that um, your proximity to privilege and what that can do. So, um, the, and also the concept of, we have to leave our community and drive 45 minutes to get to a quality education. That my community, immediate community, is it, the, the messaging, I don't believe this, but the messaging is void of resources and there's not empowerment there, we have to go elsewhere. That bus ride, I dare say, that those students took every day, they were thinking about those things as they as they drive closer to our community and the houses get bigger and the lawns get more manicured and there's more resources. And I just think that that plays on a person's mind in so many ways and and just all the layers they're in. Um, it just really, it, it really was something to me to see. And I know this is nothing that's new to anybody who's experienced schools, but that um, transformative moments as a high school student really, really transformed and stayed with me at that time. Well, there's so many experiences that uh, men and women of color have that white kids of the same socioeconomic class and age don't experience. I can remember talking with a good friend of mine and we both had at the time 15 year old boys. He was black and I'm white and we're both raising our boys and they were in church together. And, you know, we sat down one night over a beverage and we're just talking about, so what are you talking about with your kid? What, what are you talking about with your kid? And we were, um, we talk about race issues and matters all the time. We both serve on a national board that, that deals with these things and tries to wrestle with them. And when we started comparing the messages that we were giving our kids, sure, we were talking about girlfriends and all of that, but then it quickly went to, Look, you are a young black man. And when you walk into a store, this is how you need to act. When you start driving, this is what you need to be aware of. And he was sharing that with me because, you know, up until that point, I thought a lot about privilege and racism. But when you hear the lived experience and your kids are at the same, same school, same church, same age, but they have such different experiences. And I thought so much about how that message and the fear that it um, and the anxiety that was transmitted to him. And now we see George Floyd and so many things, so many reasons why that that needed to be transmitted to him. But thinking about how that formed that young man's psyche, how that formed mm -hmm. his impression. What do you think the legacy is of those experiences for those kids on our communities, you know, if we kind of pull back from just education, 
how do you how do you reckon with the legacy of desegregation and those kind of experiences that you've described? How do they translate into today's community, today's problems, or even today's strengths that we see in the community? You know, that's such a nuanced question and so interesting. I imagine, and as I've talked to some of my friends who have experienced this, it's um, get educated and get out. And that message is just um, when you have, you do, and you can leave because you want to leave this behind. And I think that keeps um, individuals from investing back in their community. And um, really, when I think about my parents moving to upstate New York and moving to Chesterfield, it was by no accident they chose Chesterfield. They did as parents do. We have two girls. We're talking to our realtor. What's the best school district? That was where their decision was made. And um, they went where the resources were because they were able. And so that's the message that I think so many of those students um, absorbed. I remember my friends who lived in the city who would come to my house in the suburb. They're like, this is where we want to live. This is where we want to be. And it isn't, it's a sense of what you have is not good enough. And, and it's not, and to say that those schools that were there were under resources and understatement. So the schools in their community didn't have the same access and opportunities, 100% agree. But that message internalizing gives you that you're not good enough. And then when you look around that all the people on the bus look just like you, I wonder what that is. I would love to talk more to someone who actually was a part of the desegregation program to see, because on the flip side, what I saw was, um, I remember, so I had the black students thinking, you're not black enough, and where are you from? And why do you talk that way? And why does your mom look this way? And then the white students say, um, you know, I got spat on, called the N-word. Why are you captain of the cheerleading? So all these all these things. So it was um, really conflicting. And I didn't see, while in the same building, I didn't see a lot of cross-cultural f- true friendships and relationships. People played on sports teams side by side, but I didn't see it like I do now. But that was really, it was still really um, strange. Um, so I think when I... The, the legacy of desegregation, we largely look at the intention, but we see the impact. I feel very fortunate. And what's been hard for me to even speak about my experiences, I used to think nobody's crying for you, Nicole, when you went to a really well-funded school and got an awesome education that affords you the opportunity to go to college. The, the, I wouldn't be on this um, conversation with you right now without some of the educational opportunities I had that I got right there in Chesterfield. And I had some really amazing foundation, but it was the other things that I learned and the um, implicit bias, the affinity bias, all the things that I saw play out that really affected me in ways that um, I'm still, it's hard for me. And I know St. Louis is a home for so many people just based on my experience. It's hard to even go there sometimes to visit my parents, to be honest, because I still, that's how powerful those moments were. I really appreciate you sharing so vulnerably about a really difficult topic. And one of the things that you've become known for, and I think this is probably as the founder of Connection Coach KC, which, by the way, I'm going to put the website up right now. It's facebook.com forward slash Connection Coach KC. I definitely encourage everybody to get interactive and go check that out um, wherever you're listening. It's Connection Coach KC on Facebook. But you've been you know, parlaying a lot of this experience, your lived experience, as well as what you know of other communities into conversations with the business community all across the region. First of all, how did you get called upon to to lead these listening sessions and to be a champion 
of diversity, equity, and inclusion? And secondly, what are you hoping happens as a result of your work with the chamber and the business community? Thank you. That connection has been a really new one. Um, Joe Reardon and I went to college together and his wife, Amy Reardon, um, is a delight and we were in the same class. And so I've known Joe and Amy for several years, um, you know, since college, gosh, decades, I hate to say age myself, but Amy and I did some work together at Rockhurst. Um, we're all alumni of there and I was talking about diversity and Joe was aware. And so when this conversation came up, he said my name emerged at the table. And I bring that up because why I developed Connection Coach KC, my business was initially to help people connect in um, authentic and sincere ways with people who can um, promote their purpose and passion. So I wanted people to build their networks and so that they can meet other people from other communities, but also foster their development and career. Because when I look at the core of the opportunities I've received, it's because of who I've known and who I've been in proximity to. So when I've lived in these communities and I've been one of the only, I'm often the person of color that other white people see. Truly proximity. That's who I'm sitting next to you in the pew at church. I'm riding my bike down the street in your neighborhood. I'm visible. And other friends of mine may not have been if they don't live in the same community. And I was saying, how can you build your network? So that's what it started as, wanting especially those who have less access to have access to not only be in the room, but be at the table. And I make that distinction because there's been times when I've had an opportunity and I've been in the room, but I haven't been at the table. Being at the table means that you're valued and respected for your opinions and you have influence. So I started there with um, that component. And then the business um, community, this opportunity with the chamber happened when Joe tapped on me to lead that um, based on some of the work that I had done prior. And it, I was honored to be asked, especially in this season, at such a pivotal time and such a crucial conversation. What have you heard in terms of feedback from literally hundreds and hundreds of people that have been participating in those listening sessions and another work that you've been doing uh, through your company? Um, what would you think is sort of the number one takeaway that, that people are reflecting back to you that they didn't know before those sessions? I'll start with the first part of your question. So. What I have had in terms of feedback at first, to be honest, people of color, especially black people were saying, we've been talking, yeah. we've been talking and groups may be ready to listen now, but we're exhausted. And what are we going to say different this time and why now? Coupled with, well, this is our time to say some really crucial things. So there was some mixed information. I can really um, relate to those sentiments because I don't think I heard too much new um, said in, in people's lived experience and their personal narrative, but yeah. the core beliefs, we've heard those before if you've been um, speaking about with communities of color. So that I heard others say um, that this was an authentic conversation and, and part of Zoom is helpful because even if we're not in the same room, which is the best way I like to build community, I know you do too, but the anonymity so that you can be vulnerable and type in questions and be um, listening in, literally listening. The types of questions that people may not feel comfortable asking those people of color that may be in their lives. And, and some said that they don't have many people in their lives. So the aha moments were, I didn't realize it was like that for you. And what people have done is, in addition to not recognizing these experiences for people of color, 
thinking those who are middle class or upper middle class are somehow immune that um, the racism and the microaggressions is more targeted to those that are in poverty. And that's a lot to unpack even just right there. But to think about not her, not Nicole, no, that doesn't happen to her and not recognizing, yes, it does. Now, are there different um, ways in which racism plays out in my life versus someone who's in poverty? Absolutely, but it still happens. Um, I think about in high school, one of the memories when you were talking, it's interesting how they come flooding back. Yeah. I babysit in the summertime as so many people do, earning money for college. And I came home um, and I was driving into our subdivision and there had been a party in my neighborhood. Um, somebody had had and it gotten large and the police were there. So they weren't letting people into the neighborhood. So I pull up and the police stopped me and um, the other people they'd waved by. And um, he asked me, where did I think I was going? And I said, sir, I'm going home. And he said, you don't live here. And I just, I was so taken aback. I just thought he didn't ask for, but I, I do. And so what are you doing? And I said, I'm returning from babysitting. And I explained, but if not for my license to have had my address on it, um, somehow that sense of belonging, I didn't belong there, not even in my own neighborhood, in my own community. And um, so those things still happen, even though I was this child in up, you know, upper middle class um, neighborhood. And so those things still play out, whether it looks different now, um, you know, if it's in, if I'm mistaken for the nanny when I'm playing with my son, or if my son, because he's fair, like my mom will say, mama to me across the playground, there's some people I see them draw their arm around their children and pull them close oh, and, and away from me. And um, it's it reminds me of when I'm dressed like this and I'm on shows, I have a shield and an armor People perceive me as one way, but when I have on sweats and a ball cap and I'm at the park with my son, it's different. So those things, I, I think those are some aha moments when people were sharing similar. It was like, wow, we had no idea this is your day to day experience. People think that they're one offs. And um, I saw pain wash over, especially my white friends and colleagues, that that was true. And while um, I'm relieved for them to understand a little bit better or get a glimpse it, I was somewhat saddened that it, it's it's taken this to get here because I thought we'd been saying that. So, yeah. Yeah, I am. I remember living through um, Rodney King and mm -hmm. the riots and thinking, okay, surely something's going to happen, right. and nothing changed. And um, now my concern, my fear, is that we're now living through um, protest again. Um, but we're talking about the same issues. And my great concern is how do we sustain this? And what can we do to begin really untangling this darkness within the heart of our, of our country and, and really trying to root out that which is worthless while still maintaining the precious. And you, you just share so many things. One of the things that I think is important um, that struck me out of what you were saying is I experience all the time when I'm talking about the work of reconciliation services on truth. If I start talking about the plight of the poor, particularly about the African-American community, 76% of the um, 5,300 clients that we serve a year with our work are African-American. And so often people who are white, who are donors, many, many, will say to me, well, that has a lot to do with education and has a lot to do with just money. And um, then in the worst moments, you know, it's just because they're lazy or they're drug addicts mm -hmm. or whatever. 
But then when you start to try to unpack two things, the impact of racism and structural racism, as well as the impact of personal trauma and then community trauma mm -hmm. on the larger level, um, gosh, I get so much pushback. People just, mm -hmm. they want to say, look, you know, it's not race. That's, you know, when was the last time you saw a white hood and whatever? I just, and I have to stop and say, do you not understand? Have you not heard, you know, how many people like Nicole need to say over and over again? And then I even catch myself falling into those same things. It might be a different issue or a different manifestation of that same bias or, or um, lack of awareness. But, you know, we have to as a community, as a nation, shine the flashlight on our biases and begin to figure out how to root out and manage them. You know, I know you've been involved in something called the round table, which is all about uh, crucial community conversations. And you've, you've uh, paired up with a good friend of ours, uh, Kiona Sinks, who's, um, you know, fresh out of college. And tell us a little bit about that work and, and really specifically, how is that work trying to or succeeding in making progress in sustaining the conversation and moving hearts in the right direction. Thank you. Yes. And thank you for being an ally because that's what you described. And it's beyond being an ally. I know it's your mission and your ministry and it's making such a difference. Um, the round table is one of my joys. Some of the times the most impactful and engaging and purpose-filled work is stuff that happens organically. And that's just what happened with me and Kiana. She contacted me. Um, someone referred her and said, you should reach out to Nicole. You all would have a lot in common. I wish I knew who that was because I would thank them in um, so many ways. But she reached out to me in a phone call and we talked and we just had a synergy. You know how that is when you meet someone and you just have, there's something um, between the two of you. There's like hearts and her passion is so infectious. And so we were speaking and she was talking about, um, we both love Michelle Obama, and she was talking about her book, Becoming, and said, wouldn't it be great if, that's the best lead into any idea that I've had that I've been a part of, wouldn't it be great if we got some men together to talk about the book? And I, on the phone, was like, what? Men talking about the book? Men always have the floor. They always have the microphone. What on earth could you mean? And she said something so great, which is so Kiana is, women always talk about women's empowerment. Mm -hmm. Men are the ones who have the privilege and have the access and the influence. How are they in their day-to-day -day lives and using this book as a backdrop, affecting change and empowering women? And I thought, brilliant. And so there it went. And Kiana is half my age. And what I love too is I had been thinking of, reflecting and praying about doing intergenerational work. And that's a whole nother podcast we could have because I'd seen such a divide specifically among women and black women and generations. And I had been, literally been thinking about this here is Kiana with this opportunity to partner. And while we couldn't have more different um, lived experience in terms of age and a whole number of factors, because she's lived in um, mid-Missouri her whole life and I've shared my background, that differences in our lived um, experiences, we had a shared narrative, even though we have this individual stories about what we want for um, communities of color in our country and beyond. And so we decided to partner on the, the, women's, the men's roundtable that went so well, led to the women's roundtable, and then led to a conversation called Why Equity, Why Now? So mm -hmm. our premise with bringing people together as you're asking fathers, we thought 
When I thought about changed hearts, people can talk a narrative about a group of people of which they don't engage with. When you know someone and get to know their story, it starts to dismantle some of those narratives and stereotypes that we have. Yeah. And not 100%, but we thought when we bring each other together in a shared space, some magic happens. We know that's not gonna dismantle systemic racism in a way that is transformative, but we know that things happen and when we come together. And then we've seen what people have continued to do on different platforms such as yours when giving me the opportunity even to share this story. There are aha moments and reflection that's deeper than we ever could have imagined. Yeah, you know, I think you bring up a really important point. Again, there's been a lot of them in this podcast. And and that is that I don't think we make progress only in one vein. I mean, I hear a lot of people who have passion about changing the heart of individuals. I've heard people talk about policy and I've heard people talk about place. But my experience has been that progress happens at that intersection between people, place, and policy. And each one of us has a role to play. Some folks like you, you know, sounds like you're involved in kind of all three of those leadership lanes to one degree or another, but you know, we've all got to start somewhere. And the, the one thing that I keep coming back to is that, like I said earlier, that deep-seated um, kind of, a, as it's been called, original sin of America that we all carry, sometimes not even knowingly, and that has to be worked out. And, you know, you hit the nail on the head when you talked about something magical takes place when you get together. I mean, that was the whole premise of Thelma's Kitchen here in Kansas City. You know, our, our work was not just to address affordable food access, but also to bring people together um, so that they can learn each other's family stories. You know, when you when you hear the story of how, for example, desegregation or white flight affected you, your education, your family, and then you're on the other side of the coin, such as I am, where my family had property on the east side, way on the east side. Um, you know, my great grandfather, my grandfather, that generation, and then sure enough, moved all the way over onto, uh, you know, Overland Park Prairie Village side where, where I grew up, which is the west side, primarily white community developed by Jason Nichols after World War II for the white community. And, you know, that that dynamic, I never was raised being told, look, we moved over here because property values and black folks were moving in and all of this. That was not even a part of anyone's narrative in my family, but it was the subtext. Whether my grandfather knew it or not, which I didn't have the opportunity to ask him, he died at 94, but you know, that was the subcontext of the movement, the migration of wealth and people and it's that intersection again of people, place, and policy that is really where things are worked out. So it sounds like, again, I want to make sure people know how to connect with you on the round table. So again, I'm going to put your Facebook page up there and I know you're working on a new website. So soon enough, you're going to be able to Google connection coach KC, but for right now, again, if you're listening, facebook.com slash connection coach KC, uh, definitely go check out the the round table and, those commercial, uh, crucial community combos that are happening. Is that open to anybody? If they if they go online, can they join those? They are. Prior to um, the pandemic, we would just have events in person. We've had 
one at East and West, a clothing store. So it was really intimate, small environment. We had another at Big Brothers, Big Sisters. And the third was at the Gem Theater. So with each time we've we've grown and we try to be community-based and accessible to anyone. They've had a fee associated with them, but we've also had scholarships. Mm-hmm. Um, and the fee is really just to cover the overhead. So we, we look forward to convening that um, those conversations and they're going to move to an online um, format similar to this in the near future, probably in September this fall. All right. Well, I'm saying it publicly. If there's ever a chance to, to host a round table in Thelma's Kitchen with the community oh. here on the Truce Corridor or to be involved in any way uh, when they're online, you let me know because we we align very deeply in terms of oh, our personal wow. and organizational mission. So I would I would be uh, super excited to have that opportunity if you were kind enough to extend it. Oh but, my gosh, I have the goosebumps. Thank you. I know Kiana's watching. And she, Kiana, we're in, right? <laughs> so Kiana is amazing. You know, we're going to get Kiana awesome. on the podcast here soon. So I'm, I'm excited yeah. for that too. Well, you know, gosh, we've spent now 40 minutes together and I feel no. like we've just barely skimmed the surface, but I want to bring us back. I end every podcast with this question. There are so many people who are trying to learn and desire to learn to increase their social impact. They want to learn how to lead with greater social impact, greater intentionality. Um, What advice would you give a leader who wants to learn to lead and, and to make a greater impact? What would you say to them? Where do they begin? You know, and I think it, I, my answer is really framed around the season that we're in. And I think, we all need to start with self-reflection. We couldn't even get into the piece and ways in which um, I can. I have been complicit in um, systemic oppression because it's the system I've been um, socialized in and the assimilation that um, Black people have gotten the message to do. So I think start with self-reflection, but also really look at your purpose and your passion. Look at your why. And I know that's been utilized often, but we each have specific gifts and skills and talents. And when you tap into those in a deep way and truly follow those, that is where the impact happens and occurs. Um, Social leaders also look, besides doing self-reflection, they look outside themselves and lead with empathy. I have noticed um, during this season, there's many people have said, I can imagine what that's like now. I can imagine being in your shoes. I will never know what it's like to be a woman of color. But when you told that story, I can imagine what that's like. And leading with a filter is inclusivity, inclusion. Um, an inclusive leader, I think, is at the core of a social leader. And if not only who's at the table, but who's not. When you're in a room, we often look around to see who's there and whose title. I dare ask people to say, who's not here? And how can you pave the way, not be that key? open the doors and invite people not only to the room, but to have a seat at the table and value and treasure their lived experiences and their expertise that they bring. Wow. It's time for you to write that book, by the way, Nicole, that's. Um... Well, you said you partner with me only if you do. that. <laughs> I think we have a partnership in the making, but thank you for that. Count me in. I'd be honored. Well, listen, I am so grateful for what you've brought today. Most especially um, I'm grateful that even though, you're tired and you've been speaking for a long time that you were willing to get on today and to share more of your story. I just wish that um, my white brothers and sisters and that everybody, particularly in the United States, would be able to just open their heart a little bit 
and to have the kind of ability to just listen actively. Because I think what you're sharing, it's not about tearing somebody else down. It's mm -hmm. about actually getting to the place where we can have all ships rise together the way that we're supposed to uh, be as a, as a nation. And your grandmother's experience, your parents' experience, and yours have given us a great glimpse of what's possible, but I can't even imagine if we were to really get to where we need to be with regard to systemic racism and, and, and other many, many other issues that we need to wrestle with, I can't even imagine the kind of prosperity and promise yes. and spirit that we would have as a country. And it may not be a popular view, but I still hold hope that we can get there. I still hold hope that, you know, through people like yourself who are doing important work that their reconciliation is more possible today than it was yesterday. So a deep, deep thanks for all that you've given us today. Thank you so much. It was an honor to be here. Thank you. Absolutely. Well, hang tight with me as we wrap up. Everybody, thank you again for listening to another episode of the Social Leader Podcast. And I have a huge favor to ask of you. If you would go to wherever you listen to podcasts and smash that like button, if you'd hit the little bell icon on YouTube or share it out on Facebook or Twitter or LinkedIn, it would really help us to share this show with more people. And lastly, if you like today's show, if you were inspired by Nicole and her work, and if you want to learn to lead with greater social impact, then I have a really cool resource that's just now launching. It's called the Social Leader eCourse. The Social Leader Essentials course can be found at thesocialleader.org. Click on the link, sign up to find out more, and one of our team is going to reach out to you to see if the Social Leader Essentials course is right for you. Well, thank you again, everybody, for listening in, and thank you again to my guest, Nicole Jacobs-Sylvie, for her wisdom, her passion, her vulnerability, her leadership as a social leader. Until next time, I look forward to talking to you again. Learn to lead with greater social impact.